today we've got another person from Scotland. So far, we've had Johnny Boy Steele, we've had Blink, and I've been up there and spoke to Jamie, James English. All great guys. So today we've got Kevin Dooley. And Kevin, you came from quite a big family. Yeah, pretty big, yeah. I mean, people used to comment and say, um, are you one of the Charles? Uh, you've got more members of the family than the Charles of the Light Brigade, you know? 18. 18, yeah. 18. 18. Yeah, my mum and dad had 18 kids. children. Wow. 18 kids and um, about 12 boys and five sisters. Yeah. And so, how many um, twins? Three sets of twins, yeah. And you've got a twin. I've got a twin brother, yeah. We were the last, yeah, we were the last. So, Mum, um, there was a, my brother and sister were twins, yeah, uh, Terence and Teresa. Then a year later, there was uh, Eileen and Joe were born, um, three sets of twins. Then a few years later, me and Brian came along, and we were identical, identical twins, yeah. So Brian shared a lot of your journey with you, addiction, did, yeah. prison, etc. And he was going to come today, but he couldn't make it. So maybe we could get him on in the future. Um, so what was it like growing up in such a big family and where, where you were based up in Scotland? <clears throat> it's, um, it's weird getting brought up with a twin, an identical with twin. twin. Never mind, and a big family, yeah. you know. With more so, sets of twins. Yeah, because um, all the time, there's, Brian's um, seven minutes older than me. Seven minutes. Yeah, so like, so he's got a wealth of uh, world experience in front of me. You know? <laughs> so I'll, he's the one I always go to for advice. And, uh, so where I am, we, um, yeah, so <clears throat> when we, um, all, all our life, no matter what we've went through, that, that seven minutes is all there's ever been between us. Yeah. Do you know, any differences we have, we resolve them really, really quickly, you know, and we go on here. But, um, so now you've got a, a twin and you I'm now the youngest because I'm seven minutes below my twin brother. Yeah. And I've got about 17 people above me. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about childhood issues, you know. Um, but like, so I don't know where I was in the pecking order, but it's weird because as soon as I was born, me and Brian, we were, we were uncles right away because our brothers and sisters were that older than us. They, had, they were married with children. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, so, so I've got nieces and nephews of the same age as me or older, you know? So, by the time you're 14, you're a great uncle. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, because um, yeah, your nieces and nephews are older than you. They're married and they're having kids, you know? So, that's good. But, um, yeah, come from a big family. You all sit around the table and um, everyone mocks in. And was the table big enough? The dishes. Yeah, yeah, there was one of the big ones you open. And, uh, <laughs> a big trestle, you know. And there was, there was um, something similar like this, but bigger. And people are running about the house. We live in a tenement house in the Gorbals in Glasgow. I don't know if you've heard of the Gorbals, Sean. No. But like, so I like to tell people it's a posh part, you know. Glasgow. <laughs> A lot of English people don't never heard of it, and uh, they'll, they'll think I'm posh. <laughs> so where we are was, um, yeah, I lived in tenement buildings, the, the, one of the oldest tenement buildings that are left in the Gorbals. are still there. Um, but we lived a big family, and um, the dinner's getting laid out, and um, everyone's got their job to bring the plates in and um, all the condiments and the knife and forks and things. Then once you're around the table, you're the youngest, so you've got to kind of eat your food fast or your brothers <laughs> jump in with a fork take a potato <laughs> off your plate 
you've got to kind of let her out, you know. So I, I learned that was defensive measures from a very early age, you know. To defensive keep my, measures? Yeah, to keep my brothers away from my food, mm. you know. Or they go like that, that's a good one. My brothers used to say, look up there, Kevin, what's that? And like a mug, you know. <laughs> I'd go, oh, what's that? And I'd turn around and half my ham's gone, you know. <laughs> Were all the twins identical? Twins, no. Uh, boy and girl, boy and girl. No, they can't be identical, but like so... Um, no, they, they, they were, me and Brian were the only ones that were sort of identical. So did you swap, girlfriend? Zygo, did you swap girlfriends as you got older? There was a lot of problems like that. And was there? I don't know the problems or, or pleasures, you know. But like, so, yeah, yeah. No, even our children, you know, even our children sometimes get mixed up and they call me dad or call him dad or whatever. Then they get embarrassed and walk <laughs> <laughs> And they're about four-year-old, five-year-old. They kind of look at us two like that, you know. Which that was weird. And um, so in school, were you guys like a unit? Would people pick on you, or would you like back each other up? And... Yeah, we learned because um, you learn from um, well, early age uh, and the gorbals. See, I, I lived in different. I wasn't like, brought up from zero to five in the gorbals, you know. Yeah. Um, I had a big family. A lot of my family were leaving house the, the, the house at the time, and they were mm. moving to England and, and living their lives and getting married and, and establishing themselves elsewhere. When me and Brian were born, when we were six months old, um, my father died. Mm. And uh, my father died, then there was the funeral, and then my mother had a breakdown after that. You were six that. months old? We were six months old. So yeah. do you remember that? I don't remember my dad, no. I don't remember. I know of him. I've heard of him, and um, I see photographs and things. But How old was he when he passed? 54. He's the age I am now. Yeah, mm, yeah. Heart attack. Heart attack. My dad was a hard man, Sean, you know, he was a tough guy and um, he was a docker. Yeah. And um, um, and I heard through the grapevine, he was, um, somebody was hassling him in the pub once, you know, something to do with money lending and stuff. And my dad put a docker's hook in his leg, you know. A docker's hook? Yeah, yeah. And the guy's thigh and pulled it back. Oof. And also I'd heard that he, he never, he wasn't terrified of anything, you know. So yeah. like, so he was a tough guy from... Um, from down um, Partick Way in, in Glasgow, and he came out. He he was born. My dad was born in nineteen twelve. Nineteen twelve. Nineteen twelve. So he can you talk about gangs and, and how rough Glasgow can be. He was in a different dimension, a different from from the later generations, you know. So like, so he was in the army, and he was a docker, but he was abroad in the army in uh, Italy. Italy. And, uh, through that, yeah. But like, so. When when um, he went to the docks, there was uh, an accident and uh, he was in the bothy, you know, where they have their tea. And there was someone hollering, shouted from the get out, the alarm went, and there was a pallet came off the crane outside and it came through the roof. <coughs> yeah. And um, everyone was, was scrambling to get out and it landed on my dad and, um, yeah, and he lost his leg. Oh. Yeah, so he got his leg off. And this was 1957 or something. So he was on sticks and he had a walking stick and stuff, and had a false leg. Yeah. Um, but he was, um, at, later on, when me and Brian started getting our own market stalls when we were 14 year old, we started earning money through markets and we went to a place in Glasgow called The Brigate um, and the Barras was, um, but we had stalls in the alleyway in the Brigade and also inside, and we'd done that from an early age, so we're earning money through there, quite, quite doing quite well and down there. I met people 
who were down there, who knew my dad, and I met a guy who was there at the day of the accident all those years ago. And this guy, has, um, it's what we call, when, when people work in the Brigade, they work the stalls in Glasgow, they're called hawkers, yeah? And they, buy, they get these sheets, you usually buy sheets, with, with, you don't know what's in them, they're called bundles, yeah? And you, 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 you pay a fiver or a ten or whatever it is, and you get a load of clothes you can sell. But they're called bundles. You see a lot of women walking about with bundles of sheets tied up in a knot on yeah. their back, carrying them about. And a lot of guys used to work there. And this guy who met me, who knew my dad, he was a hawker at the time, you know. And <clears throat> he told me, like, sir, yeah, when I knew your dad, there was a, I was a docker. And um, and then I turned to theft. <clears throat> so I became a bit of a knocker, you know, which we call in Glasgow, we call <laughs> when you knock things, it means when you steal things. He says, so all my life I've been a docker, a knocker, and a hawker. <laughs> <laughs> so like that. But he knew my dad. He seen my dad that day, and he seen my dad um, uh, scrambling to get out of this thing. And he said the tables were upturned, and there was pots of tea, and the tea was all over the floor, and people were slipping and sliding, you know. Mm-hmm. So it would have been very difficult. And the furniture was bundled up on top of each other, you know. So he told me that it would have been very difficult to get out. But so- like that. It was just weird meeting someone who had witnessed that. After he passed then, did the older brothers take the role of like the father in the in the family? When my past yeah, my dad um after the burial night, what happened was like so when we were christened, me and Brian, yeah. Um my sister Molly was my godmother and her friend Madge was um my twin brother's godmother. Right about the time of the death of my father, um Madge had got into trouble. I think, for attending the funeral and staying overnight and helping out by her brother when she went back to the house. <clears throat> in a fit of argument, anger in, in the argument, she was using a knife to cut bread. And um, she stabbed her brother and um, he died. And uh, so my, yeah, my twin brother's grand- godmother was sentenced in prison. For, oh, my goodness. So our... Um, I don't know if that's some sort of uh, what life would hold in front of you, you know, what's, what's coming. But we were only six months at the time, and that was Brian's godmother. Years later, years and years later, I met Madge. She was looking wonderful, and she was living in London in the 80s, and she's doing okay. Um, she's not a bad woman. Yeah. Um, she's not got a bad bone in her body. Um, it was a domestic that these things can happen. Yeah. Um, it just happened to round about that time. Yeah. Impacted. So how was it for you growing up without a father figure? Well, my mum had a had a breakdown, emotional and mental breakdown, a, a couple of times, and um, and um, she found it really difficult to kind of cope with young twins. Um, so we had to go in a, a a children's home for a very very short period of time. Um, I'm not talking months, I'm talking days and weeks, and uh, until it was established who was looking after us. Um, so it went to us going to my mother my mother had now moved to England because my sister Eileen had moved there Eileen had married and had children she used to breed uh, white Alsatians you know and I loved it down there because we used to walk around the corner climb up a big raw iron fence and clean cows you know feed cows and all that and uh, and Selby in Yorkshire and there was all these um, mods going about in scooters round about you know in the 60s I remember being a young guy and um, seeing all them but like so yeah um, my 
my mum went to there, so we tried to live with my mum. But my, the, one of my oldest brothers is um, William, and um, and he didn't drink and uh, smoke or anything like that, and he wasn't married, and he was a chef in Scotland at the top. So he came down to kind of uh, look after the family. He's always kind of looked after the family. Um, he's always been a caretaker and, uh, and looking after everyone. And he looked after us and he got in charge of us when we were toddlers. But between the age of zero and five-year-old, yeah, seven-year-old, things like that, me and Brian had lived in Manchester, a place called Alderley Edge or Cheshire. We'd lived in Birmingham. We'd lived in Selby, Yorkshire. We'd lived in Newcastle, Hebron, South Shields, Louisville. So... It's a wonder I've got a Glasgow accent, you know, because <laughs> I've not got an accent of um, 36 moves, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like I said, yeah, so we were in a lot of, we were in a lot of different places with my mum, then we're going back to Basel. We started school in, in Alderley Edge, in a very posh school, um, which was crazy because we wore straw hats and, and blazers like this, you know. And we had to use them, and we sat around a big, big, long, and um the teachers had capes and square hats and canes, which is just crazy. Um, so these Glaswegian, these two boys were starting that school. And George Best lived just next to us. It was 1970, 71. Wow. So Manchester, there was a lot of posh people there. Um, so our kids, we were running about with children whose, whose parents were, were famous and Coronation Street stars and all that, you know. What's her name? Betty Turton, you know. Um, we were in her house and stuff. Um, uh, we met other kids so so we went to school we went into houses and we didn't know the people we were befriending or with they were, were famous you know later on we found later on years later you know but like so yeah it was um, it was a gorgeous place to be there was a big rolling fields and um, we lived um, doing there and in the, in the playground and, and the setup in the school was um, very safe and uh, lots of space and uh, a very nutritional food and stuff like that and then we had to move to Glasgow which in stark contrast to where it was and I remember <laughs> going when I was young arriving in Glasgow and it was cold and it was dreary and it was grey and it was very industrial looking you know then when we went they moved into the Gorbals and we got the, the cabin that I could see women with scarves and cigarettes, you know, in the doorway. And then um, you see them at the windows with scarves on. Don't know why they're wearing scarves <laughs> in, the, in the house, but they've got a pillow on the windowsill, you know, and they're constantly there. So like so Glasgow is in the, in the swearing as well, you know, which I wasn't used to. So it was a kind of in stark contrast, it was really kind of a wake-up call, you know. So how old are you now when you're back in Glasgow? Yeah, between nearly seven-year-olds and we started school together. So like, so as you says, when we were at school... um. We learned quickly to kind of have each other's back because there's, there's, there's um, I mean, experiencing bullying and um, when you're young and um, it, it, you feel isolated. It's, it's very cruel, you know. And so I came across a few bullies. There's always guys older than you, 16-year-old, you know. And I remember witnessing um, Brian getting pushed over a bush and um, he had a cracking um, suede jacket on, a green jacket. It just been bought, you know. And this guy was bigger than us, you know. And... Um, but I remember um, when you grow stronger and and you grow and you realise that you can, you, you've got the weight and the resources to fight back and um, and we did. And uh, But even before that, we knew that if we fight together, 
we can bring people down. So there was a few bullies get pulled and ragdolled all over the place <laughs> and, and get the clothes and the jumpers and the skirt and everything ripped off them, the shirt and everything and dragged all over the place. And it was really a big, big, strong message that um, don't, don't come this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how were you performing academically in school? Um, I think um, I was... Somebody says to me the other day, where do you come from, yeah, Sean? And I says, um, bad education and poverty. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I just feel as if it's a bad education. I've never had um, I've never had the um, the the rites of passage of a master, of a teacher to appear in my life. Um, I hated school. I hated the system. I seen teachers bullying people. I seen people getting their head banged against blackboards because they couldn't answer a question. I came in, my knuckles were put in the desk and hit with a ruler. Um, I got people standing in bins and um, people getting poked at and pushed all over the place. And then uh, the, the belt we'll be having in Glasgow, the leather belt, you know. Um, I don't know, it's about it was three quarters of an inch thick and it's got straps at one end and another more thicker end. Um, now, that's getting hit. Young kids are getting that, and they've got to put their hands up. You know, I mean, me and Brian at older school, we got we got twelve with the, the 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 belt in one day, six from the teacher and six from the headmaster, and that's because we Brian did broke a teacher's arm. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, and um, as you do, but like that, he'd also knocked out the, the deputy headmaster. Why did he break the arm and knock the head out? Um, he's there was a fire alarm went and um, he. We were always fighting older guys, you know, at school. There was our, our second year or first year or something was fighting the fifth and fourth year. But um, it was manhandled by a teacher coming in from a fire alarm escape and um, he was pushed against the wall with this big burly teacher. And we had already witnessed in primary um, teachers bullying people like that. And um, Brian had kicked out uh, against a teacher as well and me and when we were young. Um, but... Yeah, this teacher's um, a modern studies teacher. Um, I don't know if that makes him a better fighter. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's um, his, whatever he teaches. But he was, yeah, we were going in and um, and just sort of targeted because we were kind of well-known. And uh, we were well-dressed at school, secondary school, Sean, you know. Because by that time we were earning money and um, getting up to no good and thieving. What was the first things that you did? Uh, like, like apart from assault teachers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, apart first from, police trouble. Police, police are there constant from when you're young in, in Glasgow. They're just um, they have gangs in Glasgow, and and they were massive when they were when in my day when I was young. Um, you had um, Protestant areas, Catholic areas, but you've also got territorial areas and uh, gangs. So in my area, there was a gang called the Combi, and there's down the road there's a gang called the Hutchie. You know, then there's the Tongs, and there's um, the Brickton Derry, which was across the bridge. They were quite famous ones, quite traditional Glaswegian <laughs> gangs. And um, they would they would attack, they would fight on the bridge going across from where I live. I live next to the River Clyde, and um, the Brickton Derry would come to the one end of the bridge and the Cumbie would come from the other bridge 
Now, me and Brian, being very, very young, we'd watch this, and you're talking about hundreds of youths. Wow. Hundreds of people. It's, it's like not running at each other. You're running at each other, and it's not one or two, yeah? Now, we used to see these um, chars, they would all run at each other, and there was older guys, and the older guys would have big long coats on, yeah? And they would have swords <laughs> down these. <laughs> I mean, swords, right? Big, big, long swords, yeah, down the jacket. And other ones had butcher knives, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, this is what they were going to battle with. Then there'd be open razors, you know? So there was all this metal, you know what I mean? Just clash. And there would be lots of... They would have, it's like an artillery show, you know, the one army would have its, its archers. This, the, these, <laughs> these, these type of armors, right? These sort of gangs would have... They've got milk crates full of bottles. They've got... They've got bags of stones and bricks and half bricks and all the younger ones would throw these at once so when I got older and I ran into battle right <laughs> right when I got older I started getting to the front a little bit when, when, you, when you're running into battle right you you see all these stones coming at you and you, you don't know whether they're pigeons or sparrows or stones yeah yeah, you're going like, is that, is that a pigeon? Is that a sparrow? And there's just loads of stones coming. Yeah. And like, this was every Saturday in the summer. Every Saturday? Every second of Saturday. On the bridge. On the bridge, yeah. And the fairground would come. We call it the shows, yeah. But like, so, that was massive. And um, so like, so there was a path going down the side of the Whiskey Bond to my part. I lived in a place called Waterside Street. And... Uh, where well, the Carlton Tongs came over once and, and, and threw something through my window. <laughs> when it, one in the morning, my brothers were playing pool, you know, and I think um, uh, he became a good friend of mine. He was a guy called Johnny Kirby, you know, um, and some other lads from me. And I think they threw something. It, the four windows came into the top and smashed the glass went all over the table. So me and Brian, my brothers and that, were all jumping out the window and the door, chasing them. But like, um, so on the bridge then, with these battles, the bridge, all these yeah. weapons, what kind of injuries are people getting? Uh, severe. Um, severe, <laughs> severe. Severe, severe, yeah. severe. Um, lots of people have got scars and there are a lot of facial scars. But like, so there's a lot of wounds um, on arms and, and, and legs and stuff because if someone falls, you know, they don't want to kill them. So they usually um, hit them in the lower limbs. And uh, there was a lot of that. Um, wasn't anything chopped off, you know, but because you just. The, the sort of they was running in and, and it was all short term whacking someone and running away again, you know, and jumping back. You know what I mean? But these were going on and what was incredible was um down the lane next to me, I was younger, there was all your stones and all that stuff was right. So there was a sort of um uh an ammunition line, you know, stuff getting handed up the line, you know. And it was all organized and there was leaders and um, they were the ones at the front, you know what I mean? And they were they were they were renowned, and, and they were called the Gamies, you know. In Glasgow, we call them like someone that does that game, you know. Um, so people became they were well known. These people they were like pop stars, you know, the, the ones at the front, and um, they were feared as well, you know. But like, uh, yeah, they were well known, and um, they did off your cap to them as you walked by, you know. But like, uh, the weird thing was the police, um, the police were. Uh, just another gang, Sean. There was no sort of, you better get out of here, guys, the police are coming. You know, there was none of that. There was the police just like another gang. And um, when the police came, they treated you like a, they were another gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just believed, you know what I mean? They, they, they just they just turned around and um, 
Yeah, they were brutal, you know. The police were brutal, you know what I mean? Did you but experience like, any of that? Yeah, yeah. Police brutality. What, what was your first experience of police brutality? Um, you were, you were, um, if you get caught by the police in Glasgow when I was born, when I was 12 year old and 10 year old, and my first experience was a policeman, a store detective stopped me <clears throat> in um, Woolworths in the Glasgow City Centre. I was about nine year old, me and Brian, and um, he, he pulled me up for, he said that I stole a wee collie dog and a, a farm animal. Yeah, it was cost about nine pence or something. But he took me, a nine-year-old boy, up to this office, which was terrifying. And um, he was he was hanging over me saying, I know who you are. Your name's Dooley. I know your dad. I know your family. Because I was a policeman in the Gorbals. I know, I, know, I know the shit you come from, you know. This is what he was saying to a nine-year-old. This is an ex-policeman mm. who's became a store detective. Mm. And he knew my family way back. And... Um, so I knew who the enemy was very, very quickly at that age. <laughs> so he represented everything. That was my first um, image of a police. Then the next time was um, once you knew that you were going to a police station, you, you, you knew what was going to happen. Um, what happened to me was um, I went to Craigie Street Police Station. I was um, handcuffed to here. I was beat up severely. Um, want me to sign something. Someone had died, been murdered in a gang fight. Uh, it wasn't me, was, I mean, and, um, but they wanted me to sign a confession mm. saying that I was involved, you know, or they wanted me to say who was involved. And I was a very, really young, 13-year-old or something, and um, my face was like elephant man oh. afterwards. So they presented me at my, my, my house, um, about three in the morning, uh, and my sister opened. She didn't recognise me. <sighs> she opened the door and just nodding, and she just burst out crying. And then she shouted at the police, you know, "Yeah, you bastards!" and all that. But like I so said, that stuff. Um, so for that happened to you, and I mean severely, um, face all over the face, you know, swollen and all that, and. Uh, so, like, so that kind of told me who I'm up against. And um, one time on the Gorbals police station, there was me and my friend called, uh, who remain unknown, but like, so we, we ended up in the police station and um, they handcuffed the chairs and they've got wires and plugged in and they're going to electrocute us, you know, threaten us and um, oh. do stuff. Then they touched my mate, they said, well, you are, Sean. Yeah, now I'm handcuffed here. He's over there. They're telling me if I don't sign this, they're going to electrocute him. And they did, they had me open wires, man, and I see him blew back on the, on the chair, you know. So, like, so, um, we're 14, 15 years old, you know. This was grown men, and this is how they were treating us. Then they, they tell us that um, they can just say that we try to escape as they drag you from the chair and push you across the window, three up or two up, you know. Those big frosted glass windows. So they've got you smashed against one of them. And, and the, the the scenario is <clears throat> I've jumped out the window to escape, handcuffed to a chair. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, sir, this was the madness you were up against. And um, so, how can you possibly establish some trust with law and order 
system if that's your experience of it. You know? And um, so a lot of the work I do now is to do with um, kind of offenders and stuff. Uh, How soon prison. was it before you started to get into drugs then? I started... Um, Sean, all my life there was um, something not right within me. There was something broken inside me, you know. Um, and I realised that at an early age, and I could never understand it. Um, it wasn't so, I didn't feel part of. I never, um, I never felt I could connect with people. I felt unsafe. I felt the world was an unsafe place. Relationships were unsafe from very early age. Um, so that's why I think um, me and Brian were always in gangs and we're always the leader of that gang. And uh, and we made made sure that was the case. And um, when 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 there came to us joining gangs, like these gangs I mentioned, we we, we rejected that and we started our own. <laughs> so we probably didn't last long, you know. But it was called the Waterside Rats, yeah. And um, <laughs> I remember we made masks and um, we got a little rat. I think it was a dagger on it or something, and we sewed it to this stuff. <laughs> but like that, later on, then we started um, kind of shoplifting and stuff like that, you know. But um, I'm digressing from what you were saying there about uh, what was that you asked again? Getting into drugs. Yeah. When I was feeling them, um, and I, I don't know where that was, to try and establish myself and give me some sort of identity by being leader of a gang. Um, but I never felt, I felt less than. I felt um, a shame and a guilt that I didn't know where it came from. It was uncomfortable being me. Um, wasn't good in relationships. Um, then when I broke into the Mersey, which is a ginger factory, we call it ginger, it's pop, yeah? You call down here, soft drinks, we call it ginger. So there's a big drink factory, it also had cider in it and stuff like that. So I sold that when I was 12-year-old or something, yeah? 13-year-old, right? After I'd been slashed, to tell you about that. <laughs> but this time I'd been slashed on the face, yeah, by a guy who accused me of seeing his girlfriend, yeah, which I wasn't doing, right? And, um, you know what I mean? He said unconvincingly, <laughs> which I wasn't doing. And um, so he, we got in a fight and he hit me and um, he, he had a razor in his hand and uh, and it hit me there and then ended up all blood. We ended up going to a, a family's, Called the Fullertons, they lived in the Gorbals, and there was one of them members of the family was wheelchair bound, and um, and they treated me and helped me clean me up, then put oil early on my scar and told me that we'd be away in eighteen months and stuff. So even then, <clears throat> I'm not relying on the police, I'm not relying on the, the hospitals or the accident emergency, all the normal routes in society. I'm not establishing any of them, and at the same time, I don't feel connected to any world I'm in. So when I stole that cider and I drank it, I felt connected. I felt all that stuff I felt went away. Um, I felt normal. I felt that I was like normal people. So that was my first time. And from there, there was um, a lot of prescription pills going about Glasgow at the time. And there was headlines. They were cost 50 pence each. It was for a Valium. Or a, or a DF and these older guys old men and pensioners and stuff are drinkers yeah they would sell their prescriptions to younger people 
And um, they all hang about the shopping arcade in, in Glasgow <laughs> and the, at the top outside the bookmakers, yeah. So like, so you've got this 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 sort of fence outside. They're all leaning against outside the post office where they can beg off whoever's cashing the Monday book, right? Where they can catch something there, all outside the bookies, yeah. And they're all hanging about there and they're selling their, their hotspots of uh, prescription pills to young people so they can buy their next can of Carlsberg or whatever it was at the time. Um, that's where I came across Valium and DFs. And What's a DF? It's a dihydrocodine. It's a painkiller. And um, that's a brand name, DF. And um, dihydrocodine is very strong. And uh, if you take a few of them, you can... It's very similar to heroin, you know. But, but you vomit a lot with, with them. But there were 50 pence, and the Valium was as well. Then there was Tamazepam. And that, and also, um, then there was Peach Palf, which is a really old one, you know, Juno, really old ones. These were all 70s, 80s drugs, you know. Um, I was drinking and, and taking pills, and at, so 2013, 14, I was going to school drunk, you know, I'd, I caught a bottle of whiskey in my pocket in school, you know, I'd give up on school, so, um, you know, why did you go to school? I just here for the beer, you know, and uh. <laughs> Did you like school? Yeah, the beer was good. <laughs> so, like, so it was just weird. Um, but when I took these things and got out of my head, everything in my life was about um, being stoned or, or half drunk or half stoned or getting there, you know, um, because I, I couldn't um, live in me. Mm -hmm. Did you get into weed and ecstasy? No, I didn't like weed much. Um, there was a lot of that going about. But um, but yeah, I took a lot of ecstasy and um, I injected ecstasy as well. Injected yeah, ecstasy. Yeah, which I don't know if you've done that. No. What's the procedure for that then? I don't know what kind of person. I found out later that um, people who use intravenously, yeah, um, which I'd done later on in life with heroin, cocaine, and crack cocaine, and and snowballs and stuff. People who use it are the biggest risk takers. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true. But apparently, um, that's what that's what they say. Yeah. Um, no, I was um, like you. I was involved in drug dealing, ecstasy, selling it. There was a lot of money to be made. How old were you then? At the time, twenty eighteen, not twenty, yeah, twenty one. That. And um, so me and Brian were involved in that, and uh, and taking it, and and does that really feel good? Factor the ecstasy, you know, boom. So it doesn't matter if you're taking the two in the morning or two in the afternoon, you know. Um, I don't need music, I don't need to dance, you know. I just need to feel nine feet tall and um, the whole world looks pink, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I've got a permanent smile on my face, and uh, yeah, and, and carrying a knife, you know, <laughs> which kind of start contrasting, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, you're supposed to be this peace loving guy on ecstasy, and yet you're carrying weapons, guns. Knives. You said guns. Yourself. You said guns, though. Yeah, well, I, I used to come across and, and sometimes carry a gun if I had to. You know, I went to prison for firearms. How did you get your first gun? How does that come about in this country where guns aren't legal? Was um, well, the ecstasy was um, was it was me looking for a bigger high. That's why. I, that's why I, I used heroin. Um, I used um, ecstasy the way I did. Um, how easy it was to get a gun was um, there was. I come from the south side of Glasgow. There's a lot of connection with criminals and um, IRA, which is terrorists, and the war in Ireland at the time. 
and how this overspilled and impacted on certain areas in Glasgow, whether they be Protestant or Catholic. Um, and there was a lot of uh, people supporting, <coughs> which they called the cause. <laughs> and I've learned today that I'm the cause. No? <laughs> I was trying to explain to people, you know, and my brother Brian says, no, Kevin, you're the cause. No? Remember that. Um, so like, so... So I'm 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 supposed to be involved and I'm supposed to be swept away by this because I'm Catholic and um, I'm from a big Catholic family and people just stereotypically put you in a box, you know. This is what you're about. When the last thing I wanted to be involved was <laughs> some cause in another country and um, and um, or giving any my money or belongings to them, you know. But like, um, so what happened would be. Um, the, we were that close to the to the to the to the troubles in Ireland that we would be in a pub, yeah, and a member of the IRA would come in and other representatives in Scotland and Glasgow, as they called themselves, right, and they would ask for um, the keys to someone's house, and um, and my friends would um, gladly surrender their keys to the house, and that house was to be, was to be a safe house. It's, um, it's now got munitions and semtex and. Semi-automatic weapons and and cashing just like a cash and carry armory, you know, in the living room. And wow. uh, but they would do that voluntary, and they would get nothing for it. And my friends who were Protestants were robbing banks and um, getting thirty thousand pound and and sending it straight over the the, the sea for their cause. <laughs> and um, everyone had a cause, and uh, and and they would be impoverished and living in in uh, low-level housing in impoverished areas in Glasgow, but they wouldn't spend a penny. And all that. So they would go to jail after robbing a bank, whereas that would never cross my mind. If you rob a bank and you got 30 grand, I mean, I wouldn't be sending it across to some terrorist organisation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but like that, that was going on, and, um, and it's the same on the Catholic side as well. There was Catholic criminals closely connected to IRA. So there was a lot of access to, to weapons. And um, the first weapon that i seen was in a, in a house on a coffee table with um, a free bar here and uh, free ducks on the wall. All very normal, yeah, in the house. Flowery curtains and, um, and there were six pistols put down on the table, yeah. And I must have been 16 years old, you know. But like so, this Irish, um, this um, this IRA, this um, the war in Ireland impacted so much that teachers at school were um, asking me and Brian and approaching us to get involved in promoting the cause. <laughs> <laughs> so like so, which we we just spoke to each other and we refused. You know, there's nothing in it. You know, for us. You know what I mean, so. Um, if we wanted a weapon at that time, it's probably because I fell out with somebody and I thought maybe I needed it. But like, so I didn't, you know, but it was there. So what were your first arrests then that led to incarceration? Um, from 15, 16 year old, I'm being arrested and I, I've just got my, criminal, I've got my criminal record there. So you're going to young offenders then already? 1982, yeah, young offenders. I was in Berlin Prison, which is an adult prison, very tough prison in Scotland. That's the one that Johnny Boy escaped yeah. from. Yeah, I met, I was with Johnny in um, Perth Prison. Yeah. I used to, we used to talk in the gym and um, 
pea smoke in the gym. He'd be he'd be he'd be laid out on the on the um, the mats, you know. And um, he wouldn't do anything. He was just kind of up there, kind of having a little smoke. And and I would sit because I wasn't into sports either, you know. But I would sit, and that's how I got to chat to him. But yeah, he's very wise. So he was an esteemed uh, figure, and still is in the Glasgow underworld. Mm. He was. He's really interesting. I just find him a very wise, um, laid back, a very uh, philosophical guy, you know. And uh, he was. Yeah, I like listening to him. So, what was Young Offenders like for you? Young Offenders is uh, in Glasgow. Is and um, any any places. There's a fight every day. You know, there's a fight every day. Um, there's yeah, there's um, so you've got to be on top of your game really, really quickly. Uh, there was um, perverted prison officers feeling up boys oh. and all that stuff going on. Um, I was in my prison one day, me and this guy, this younger guy, and myself, and he looked younger than me, you know. But I was behind the door when the door opened and the screw came in, big fat prison officer, never knew I was there. But he's jumped over and he's, he's got him and that, that kid stood up in his bed to get away and he was fondling him in the corner, you know. Mm. And I opened it, I kicked the door and um, it bounced off because they had the lock, had it unlocked and it bounced back and came back and he turned around and seen me. And that's when I jumped in the bed. I threw my shoulders back. I was only young, but like, so I tried to big myself up. And I was raging. And, and he went out. You should see the shame in his face, that prison officer, you know, when he went by me. But like, so, so I witnessed that. And if I'd seen it, it means it, it, means it goes on in young offenders. Um, but I had problems with um, some guys and... Uh, who were shouting out the window, like to be big guys, you know. And they were from the Gorbals, the same place I come from. Funny enough, I've never had a problem with anybody else in Glasgow <laughs> my own area, you know what I mean? See, me and Brian from an early age, we're 12-year-old, we, we live in the, the Gorbals, we're right next to the town centre. So, like, so from an early age, me and Brian started going up the town. So we met, and all the gangs would gather in George Square at night. So when we went to the nightclubs and we used to get in, 12, 14 year old and that and all the pubs were very close and we used to drink along the, the riverside as well the clay side it's called and on all the pubs along the Broomy Law we got to know everyone everyone and people remember you because you're a twin you know and we used yeah. to be all, all dressed up and all that stuff you know what I mean and getting all the snazzy gear right <laughs> so like I said but excuse me you're fine Right. So what happened was in jail was um, you have some problems with people and um, Brian is, was in Long Regain and uh, and I was in Long Regain but I went from Berlin he was in Long Regain different times but <clears throat> whereas I was um, I had a problem with four guys or something and um, I went into the, the canteen and it was all small square tables with four people sitting on them and large pots of um, tea and um, and I walked in and I just made my mind up just to attack the four of them as soon as I seen them right? <laughs> on my own heels, right? And um, I says, I wonder how this is going to end up. And uh, But I walked in, I just walked up to the room and as I walked up towards them, I'd, I'd, I got two two pots of tea from a table I was walking by. So I grabbed two pots of tea and I just ran at them and jumped in the four of them and, and had the tea all over them, you know? So... They all thought it was nuts, you know what I mean? Just <laughs> jumped in amongst them. So there was only kind of one to deal with, you know, because the freedom of shit themselves. Um, 
and they were scolded to you on top of them, you know, <laughs> kind of keep them quiet. But like I said, yeah, so it was that kind of getting rid of this danger really, really quickly because I've got to live there, you know, and that's what it was like. Um, so there was a few fights like that I had to deal with and and why was to establish yourself quickly. But then Brian was in um, Longrigan and uh, rather than fight people and that, he was defending prisoners because um, he was uh, he, he he was charged with leading the mutiny and uh, leading a mutiny. mutiny what does uh, that mean? And he um, he he they went on strike the prisoners and um, had the protest and they locked themselves in the canteen, yeah, in the well, the dining room, yeah, and um, and it went to court and all of that. But what happened was um, how it happened was they all went for their tea. And they're all in the hall. Then, then it kind of kicked off by a, a code word. Then prisoners ran for the door to lock the doors, but some prison officers ran away quick, and they got out one of the doors. But there was a couple of prison officers didn't weren't as fast, and they get pelted with everything mm. and stood on, you know. But um, but it was Brian that calmed everyone down and jumped on top of the table and got everyone gathered. So. Then they, then they held themselves, I don't know how long they were there, seven hours or something, eight hours. Then the Mufti mob came in. But like, uh, yeah, they made demands. That's how they were getting treated at the time. They were getting treated like dogs and um, longer again. Because it was in the middle of Ayrshire, middle of nowhere. And uh, you can't hear your screams when you're on a ship miles at sea, you know. And there was young people and there was a lot of abuse and um, a lot of people's rights were being messed about. And, and nobody spoke about it because they wanted to be young Young, uh, young, tough Scottish guys, you know, and so people don't talk about things. They don't talk about um, getting beasted up or or getting laughed at and ridiculed and spat on and screamed at and, and stuff like that. So Brian was there at the time, and he just went like, like he done at school, all through school. He's against authority all the time. <laughs> he will, he will lash back. And um, so there was a big trial at court, and um, it was all the evening times at the time, and um, and he was down as the ringleader, you know, this thing I didn't regret it I, don't, I thought he'd done was, I thought that was good that was, that's a good thing so you said you was a gang leader earlier and then he's got this leadership role with the prisoners would you say that you guys are natural leaders um, I think I learned that um, like even when we were young we were trying to make films and stuff like that we were, we were no 16 mils and 8 mils and cameras and that and then we were, we were um, and we rallied just people to, to kind of come join this film you know let's make <laughs> so like so yeah we're always interested in something we're all interested in something a little bit different I mean um, it was 1977 70s and that and um, me and Brian were looking at New York and DC comics and sending away for those baseball gear you know those tops and that nobody was wearing at the time and we were trying to get that so we're always doing something a little bit different um, and I think we've always been our own men, our own vision, and um, and we've went from A to B, and I think we've took risks and went further, or ended up in trouble. But at least we've took risks, and um, I think anybody who knows us over our life would 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 attest, would, would yeah yeah agree that. And even now in my recovery, um, um, I lead the way, and um, I've became a kind of an advocate for. For, for people who are addicted and who have patterns of offending um, or who have been homeless and that all around the world. So, yeah, I stood up. I think it's, um, why did why did I do this in my recovery? Why, why did I get my way to kind of help and support? 
and stick up for people. Um, number one, to make amends, yeah, from from my stuff in the past, and also, um, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? That was a quote by the, the American Civil Rights Movement, um, and I live by that today, you know. So why am I here? If not me, then who? What are you doing that for? If not now, then when? And that's, that's the same sort of stuff. So you don't realise it's like, um, um, when are you strong? When you have to be. That's when you're strong. When you have no choice. And a lot of my life is um, based on second chances. Yeah, I've, most of my life is based on second chances. So like so. But I found that even in rehab and things like that, I went my own way, you know. Um, I see things. And my daughter says to me the other day that um, everything I've achieved in my recovery are all the stuff that I've really wanted to do. And, uh, yeah. But I still, um, you've read my stuff, you've seen what I do on a line and stuff and the followers you get and, and the people I, I speak on behalf of. Pardon me. And um, all the speaking engagements I've done, and um, and I always um, I'm always there to represent people who are misunderstood, who are getting treated less than, who are, who are not being understood, who are not being shown compassion, who are not being afforded dignity, who are not being respected, and they're called junkies, they're called alkies, and they're called the homeless, you know, the homeless people. They call them homeless people as if it's their fault, you know. People without homes, that's who they are. So, like, so even now, there's there's a yearning to go further with that and um, talk for it. But it's something that was there before my recovery, as you said, when I was leading gangs and stuff. And a lot of that um, hands-on, pragmatic, immediate, doing something right away, um, because it was to survive when, when I was in the madness. But to now, that, that straight's still there. I still do things kind of... On it. But it's a different reason I'm doing it now, you know. If you want to support Kevin in his mission, all of his socials are in the description box below this video, and his YouTube channel link is over there. So please subscribe to Kevin's YouTube as well and support his socials. So how long were you in the Young Offenders for? I was in Young Offenders from 16, mostly on remand, and then I got my detention centre. Have you been to detention centre? No. Right. So Brian got Boston when I got detention centre. So what does that mean then, detention centre? It's called the short, sharp shock. You ever heard of that? Yes. This is this is um, this is the one that was getting politically getting touted about this for many Margaret years. Under Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, and before, yeah, the short, sharp shock. So, like, so, um, in England, you get six months detention centre. In Scotland, because it's tough, right? You get three months. <laughs> because six months would absolutely kill you, you know. Um, what a place, man. Um, detention. It's Glen Oakle, it's called. HMP Glen Oakle. Um, I went there, and um, the first thing they do is there is a gauntlet of prison officers, and not one of them miss you, yeah? Hitting you with sticks and booting you all the way down to your hall, yeah? And that's just to tell you who the boss is. And um, it's murder. Then you get dragged. you got to march everywhere you go. Every time you walk by a screw, you got to shout, yes, sir. Um, no talking to anyone at all. Um, 
you get you get um, six in the morning to get you up. And they've got you out running a mile in under seven minutes. Test you first thing. You do that. I mean, you do that. Do that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You've got eight minutes, seven minutes. You've got to run a mile. I got mine down to six, so under six minutes. My legs are eventually, yeah. But unbelievable, any weather. And then you go through a, 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 a soaking wet assault course as well, first thing in the morning. Then you've got gym um, in the gymnasium twice a day. Um, there's no education whatsoever. There's no classes. There's no, you know, um, it's just, uh, it's quite brutal. Um, in, the, in the gym, um, the screw hit me with a ruler and just jabbing me in the stomach. I grabbed it, you know, which was a mistake because then I got beat up and dragged away, thrown into a solitary cell. And uh, then out in the, the yard, the parade yard, you have to march everywhere. And there's this Belfast Irish screw screaming in my ear at the side, you low life, you little crunk, screaming at you, you know, you can do fuck all, you're useless screaming at the top of his voice and you have to stand still and not move, you know. Then they're marching you about in the rain and they put that in. Um, I had a fight in there with a guy as well, you know, who who jumped. I was um, in the cleaners, the cooks, and this guy was from Aberdeen. Um, and I think I said something about his city, you know, or something. Anyway, I'm scrubbing the floor and that and he kicked me right in the back, you know, I had the whites on. There was a big size 10 boot in the back of my, my back jacket. I did walk about with that. Only my legs are, yeah, and my mop went all over the place and I'm soaking wet and I'm trying to get up and fight him back and I'm slipping all over the place. And the guy's got the better me and he's basically um, mopping the floor with me, right? <laughs> to use a term. And um, so, yeah, yeah, he's, that was the only fight in there. But the, the screws, it was quite brutal. And um, I got to know a guy called Stuart Reavy from Manchester and he learned me sign language. And we used to sign language to each other when we were on the stairs and that to talk. And then I found out if I put my comb in my door and just ever so gently, I can unlock it and it'll open. And I got that opened in my, in my cell, in my hall, and I heard the screw shouting, Dilly! Get that fucking door shut. <laughs> so, so I tried that a couple of times, you know. But like I so say, you've got to make your bed, bed block your bed and all that, and like the army, you know, and you've got to stand attention, then they take your jacket off you and they swipe it under the bed, and if there's any dust, your place gets kicked all over the place. You've got to make it again. So it's the making of young 16-year-old Glaswegians. It's a wonderful place to go. Um, you come out a better man. Well, a lot of the guards ex-military. You get, yeah, yeah. And you shaved, your hair's shaved as well in front of everyone to humiliate you, you know. Um, apparently they think that's the way forward, to humiliate someone is to increase their esteem, is to hum- shave their hair in front of <laughs> a lot of people. So um, so I came out again, you're hating the system again. So that's, I was um, 16, 17 or something. But that time you've came through the Scottish school system, which includes the brutality and belt, the belt, you know. So, I don't know, there's something about Scotland, I think. They think that kind of violent approach works, you know. And um, it's quite weird because um, the, 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 uh, they looked at, and it's tragic as well, but they looked at um, young men and or young people dying and um, mortality rates and all that in different cities. And, and they found it was quite high in Glasgow. And they went, 
oh, that's um, interesting that there's more people that is it their diet, is it a bad health, you know, and um, I'll be talking about yeah, but they found out that the high number wasn't just people, it wasn't women, it wasn't old people, it was certain people of a certain age between 18 and 26. What happened in Glasgow was in recent years, and, and as always, um, more than other cities, more young people are dying, and it's through tragic circumstances and it's through death, uh, through through violence, yeah? And they call it the Glasgow effect. This is what scientists and, and social scientists are calling it, the Glasgow effect, where from an early age, um, young Glaswegians become adversal. Adversity is um, any other young man who comes approaches you. And that's that. That's called the Glasgow effect, and um, and that's what I've witnessed. That's what I've seen. So I could I could agree with the, the research about that. What was your behaviour like from when you got released from young offenders to your next sentence? Um, I had established myself as um, definitely part of a criminal subculture, and I didn't come out of it for some years. And uh, that's what I done. I said. Um, there's nothing in normal society I want that I can work with going for a job, going for job interviews and, and trying to settle down and stuff because I can't get, build relationships with people because I feel less than. And I, so my relationships with, with women are doomed as well. So even of having a son and um, from an early age and um, my son Kevin was born when I was 17 or something. Then um, later on, my daughter Shelley. And, uh, and what happened was... Um, they were the only people I trusted and uh, my children and uh, I didn't trust any another human being, not even anybody I was in a relationship with. Um, they were very stable. I didn't know what warm for intimacy was. I knew what intensity was. I knew what hatred was. But I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't relax and, and have chit-chat and talk and the way people do. You know, it was all front with me. You know, it was all front. I had to be stoned. Was Brian out with you at this point in time? Yeah. And uh, so Brian has um, done Borstal, you know, so he's he's more kind of, he's learned a lot more about crime in Borstal than anything else. So when he came out, he had knowledge that I never had um, and contacts and uh, been there a longer time, establishing better friendships and relationships, whereas a short, sharp shock, you're in for a shite and a shaving out, you know. Do you know what I mean? Three months, years later, I'd done, done longer standing in the canteen queue in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they call it a dosser sentence in Glasgow, don't they? Three months, yeah. A dosser sentence, you know. But like, sir, so me and Brian established, yeah, we just established ourselves. We says, look, so it's, it's, um, it's us against the world and we need to establish ourselves in this world we're in because it's no working, you know what I mean? And, and we hate authority. Uh, but we're in the cadets when we were young. For a few years. The cadets, what's yeah. that then? Army cadets, yeah. Army cadets. Yeah, we lied about our age and we got in early. Then we left when we were the age you're supposed to join. <laughs> so how long were you cadets for? Three years or something. Three, Three years? Yeah, something like that. On and off. Yeah. I used to go to cadets. So we had, um, so we learned how to fight, box and um, and, and fire guns uh, So and get some sort of discipline. Yeah. So people would see us in the summer standing in our tenement outside in the stairs spitting and polishing our boots you know a couple of young kids sitting on the stairs um, in the summer and uh, so we've got a lot of discipline there as well you know and we fought each other boxing in the match in, in the ring yeah they threw us in together as usual you know <laughs> so um, so that as well yeah but like um, 
So they, we were very close and we says we made a decision that this is us. So for the, the next few years of our life, it was everything was illegal. We weren't weekend criminals, you know. I wish we were, but lives are. So is it escalating from drug dealing to other things? Yeah, well, Brian, Brian's went to um, robbery, post office robbery. And post like office that. robberies, is that, yeah, is that armed he robbery? He time. No, I don't get it around, no. Yeah, he would have probably a knife, you know. But like, so, so what? What's the procedure to do that? Matt. To rob a post He was office. very young. He was very young, and um, it wasn't me done it. It was um, Brian had organised it, and never organised it. He got involved in it, and um, and he got his boss off for it. So you just you go know? in with a knife while they're in there, or yeah, and mm -hmm. hold them up. I think that was just traditional hold up. Yeah. Post orders, stamps, old bandit, and all that cash. around the scarf, <laughs> Jesse James, yeah. you know, right? It was all that stuff, and uh, yeah, so it was all that, and. Um, but like said, he's. Uh, but later on, we were involved in anything that can then make us a buck, you know. And if that means um, um, taking van stuffs away from cash and carries, or or drug dealing, or anything like that. So you robbing drug dealers? No, I don't think I've ever robbed a drug dealer. But like said, I fought over areas to to control an area rivals. to sell my own drugs. Yeah, so you get rivals in that. You get that. Um, what were yeah. those fights like? I don't know, a knife fight, I got stabbed. <laughs> um, I got, um, a guy jumped out of the car and um, came at me. I was uh, with a girl and um, her pram, baby in it, and uh, I was talking to her. A nice summer evening, and a uh, car jumps up, and the guy comes over, he wants to speak to me. He's waving his arms, calling me this and that. I just want to talk, I just want to talk, blah, blah, blah. And what he was talking about was, I had barbed his, he would people organising, selling drugs in a certain area and I'd barred them, I told them they can't they can't do this here, you know politely <laughs> so like so, so he's came at me and says he didn't want nothing to do with it and I went okay, then he jumped behind his back and he pulled a knife out and then he came at me and started waving this knife in a lovely summer evening in um, Gorbo Street in the Glasgow, in, in Glasgow <laughs> near Norfolk Court I think, yeah down near the so he's coming dancing at me with this and I thought that like, he probably thought that I never had a knife, you know. But I was always told, told up. Um, people are, you know, and um, and that thing. So I, I think he thought I didn't have. Anyway, I've jumped out and, and flew mines out, flashing blade, and uh, yeah. Then a knife fight ensued, and it's quite weird when I've been in a knife fight, you know, um, how fast you've got to move, and um, and when that's coming at you. Um, I don't know, it's hard. There's not many people who would go in a knife fight, you know? Um, but like, sir, when you're actually one to one with someone and your life depends on it, it's different from these guys in the ring, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or the cages, you know? Um, nobody's going to die, man. But like, sir, nobody's going to try and kill you, yeah? I think the difference is you can die in a professional sport. But like, sir, when you're up against somebody, they're, they're just trying to kill you. Yeah, they don't care. And um but yeah, yeah, we fought that and um a knife fight and uh, I put my hand up and um I went through my wrist and uh it was an electric shock all through me. So it was a lot of a lot of um I fought with one hand, yeah, my knife with one hand, because this one was disabled and uh I still went ahead and uh, and the guy seen that and I think he backed off because he knew that I wasn't stopping. Even though it was like that guy, Monty Python, you know, he jumps about with one leg and all that. I would imagine that I would end up being no arms and uh, 
one 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 leg, you know, cut off and uh, hopping about. You know what I mean? Told you I'm winning, and uh, my legs are. Uh, yeah, so it was a bad injury, and I had to go to the hospital and, and get stitched up and stuff. And um, it was quite deep, and uh, that. So like so, so that was uh, you're up against. But like so, these are um, I seen violence and, and and like that as a as an occupational hazard. Everything became if you get ripped off, it was an occupational hazard. If you get money stolen, if you lost money, if you got wounded in a fight, and um, you got it's just an occupational. It's the life you were leading. There was a book called um, Riding the Tiger in it. If you got off the tiger, a weetie. Do you know what I mean? That's the sort of lifestyle you're leading. Did you lose count of the knife fights you had? I lose count, yeah, of the, the fights, yeah. Um, Do you get used to it? Always getting beat. No. <laughs> Did you develop a technique over yeah, time? Yeah, just, yeah, just fight and fight until you're beat, you know what I mean? But like so, <laughs> uh, no. No, you learn how you fight because um, along the way, you're just, you're street fighting and you're, you're fighting at school and you, and you get taught in the, the cadets and, and me and Brian knew how to use different weapons from the cadets so we were confident and and Brian had a good dig on him you know he's knocked a few people out um, so we were confident that way um, but like so I was um, I got a I was in a pub and I was against the bar and um, I was up there getting the bar and then there was the door opened and um, five people looked in with masks on and stuff you know and masks on calling to me and I'm looking about. Ah, I'm, like, I'm going. Are they looking for me? Is that me you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. And um, they wanted to make him outside and go in the van. Go in the van. Yeah, that's, I was. That's appealing. Catch you in a minute, lads. Right <laughs> after my nibbles and my whiskey, I'll just be with you. You know. Yeah. Mm. So then, yeah, they were wanting to drag me through this thing. So like so the screw the the um. So they came in because I wasn't going. To- that's the only reason they came in and um, and they came running at me in the baseball bats and um, pickaxes and God knows what so I've now got five of them coming at me and um, what happened was there was a there was a bandmate yeah and she had turned round and she seen these people running at me yeah and I could see them getting further and further inching. and the people in the pub who were normal drinkers they had now moved to the other end of the pub <laughs> so you've got one end of the pub I mean, packed with revelers, yeah, that are on a night out. Then you've got this lunatic squad down the other end, right? Brandishing every weapon you can. I think one of them had a fireman axe, which got me in the head, right? But a very small one. And um, and you've got me right in the middle on my own, right? <laughs> uh, trying to enjoy a drink. And uh, you've got this, this barmaid came up to me, right? And she, and she, she turned around and she put it on the bar and a screwdriver. A long screwdriver. Wow. Yeah. Then she walked away. <laughs> but that's what she done. And um, God bless her to this day um, because that's what saved my life, you know. And um, I took it off the thing. I had a long coat on. It was the 90s, early 90s, and um, used to wear long coats, yeah. And sometimes you would have a big hood on them, yeah. But like, sir, I put the screwdriver in my pocket. And then I threw a chair at this mob to disperse them. Yeah, but they came running at me, and uh, they got a few whacks in. Uh, 
so I seen stars in yellow and blue because this baseball bat on my head. Then freedom came at me, and I'm trying to fight them off. And I could see the the glint of a small axe, you know, above my head. And I says, "That's coming towards me." And I thought to myself, I remember, I says, "That's going to connect, you know, <laughs> that's going to land." And it did. It got me right in the centre of the skull. I've got. I've got. Uh, what happened was my skull. The, 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 there's a protective layer between your skull and the brain, yeah? Yeah, that was all broken up. So I got some stitches up there, a few stitches um, across the front of my head. But um, I never stopped there because um, I'm still fighting. I'm still awake and uh, I fell backwards. Tables have moved out of the way. I fell on a chair the way I am right now. My legs are splayed out. I'm now sitting on the screwdriver, my pocket. Sean, I can't access it, yeah? So now I've got people either side of me. Some have chosen to break my legs, yeah? So they're they're, they're, they're breaking, um, they're trying to break my legs, yeah? Um, I know that's what they're trying to do, right? Yeah, I'd put widows and orphans' money on it. That's what they're trying to do, right? And uh, So they're trying to break my legs and um, the other ones are trying to break my skull and... Uh, so they're swinging baseball bats and I'm kind of ducking and they're smashing frames on the wall behind me and glasses all coming down. And uh, the next minute I get the clump. So I got I got some severe shots across the head because I wasn't protecting my head. The reason why I'm not protecting my head, yeah? I don't know where I got the will to withstand what was happening to me. Um... But I'll tell you what, what my main thought was, yeah? Trying to get that screwdriver <laughs> out of my pocket. <laughs> because that was all I had at that time. Um, I got it out. Um, I got this person twice in the stomach. And I got him twice in the face, either side of me. And, and once they had been wounded, they backed off a bit. Give me a breathing space, and uh, that's when I, they, they just started back off. So they, they, I must have wounded them quite badly, or they must have got a fright, you know. But other finished with me, but like so, that's we got them pushed back and they pushed back. Um, I got up and staggered, I stood and I looked down at the pub, and I could see everyone terrified down that end. There was no witnesses to this, by the way. <laughs> I can assure you when the police were involved nobody's seen a thing and uh, yeah, even me I, said, I don't know what happened I think I fell I, I, I don't know what poutine I think I was drinking that day yeah honestly God yeah 120 people at that end right and a barmaid who gave me a screwdriver yeah and nobody's seen a thing and then um, and they say to people at the time you must know Kevin Dooley. He's a, he's a bastard. They were saying to him, you know, him. he's a gangster. He's a he's a he's a drug dealer. He's a low life, you know. Him and his twin brother are scumbags, you know. And there was another um, drug dealer who said that uh, that after me and Brian got him his comeuppance, yeah, the one that stabbed me, um, we got he got him his comeuppance a few weeks later. Both he's got him um, and smashed his fancy car, but we him inside it, you know. And uh, he says, <laughs> someone should have drowned those two like rats when they were born. <laughs> because we come from the River Clyde, you know, mm. which is funny. But like, um, 
So what happened in that time was I've staggered to the bar and stood there and uh, and thought I was okay to walk. And I thought I would walk. And Brian has alerted. People are saying this is happening. It's got through the gorbals. So the people who done that left Glasgow, man, they got away. They, they laid low, you know. Why they, did they want to get you so hard? Because I got them so hard. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, again, it's over controlling areas and drug dealing and um and uh and me and brian um, it's this comeback it's tit for tat in it and they're coming heavy you know you know what i mean so if you've done one of them they want to do one of you and um i'd be to do one of them so this is them coming back to do it one of us and it just happened to be me and uh so but brian was quite quite quickly organized and my gang was well organised and um, and lots of information was coming in really, really quickly. So it was easy to track people down and we need to know who's behind those masks, you know. So we found that out as well and um, and things were resolved, you know. But like that, which I don't want to discuss, but like that, um, what happened was, as the out, it's like young people think it's tough and, and do that, you know, and it's, we want to get involved in crime and stuff. Like when I talk to young people, I tell them what, what I had to do to come back from that, you know. Um, I had a massive brain injury and only recognised by Brian's wife, whose sister had had, had a tumour, a brain tumour. So when I got to Brian's house and that, and um, it was a really busy night. People were running out, phones were on, and, and all my mates were out driving about and finding who's who and finding who was there and who set me up because I had been followed, you know. So somebody had been sent on my on my tail and had followed me for a couple of pubs, then phoned and told people to come where I was. So um, <clears throat> I got him back, yeah, on my own. And I got well, you know, the guy that done that and set me up. But like, so, um for me, um, I couldn't speak. I was trying to write and I couldn't write properly, and I was writing hat shit. Yeah, I was trying to explain what happened. And in the hospital, when they took to the hospital, they thought I was drunk and discharged me from the Victoria Hospital. But it was a massive brain injury. I had massive, my brain is smashed against my skull, and um, I had massive bruising. So I couldn't speak. Um, and when I got to the Southern General Hospital, which is the neurobiological department, um, I went there that night and um, they'd done some tests and they found uh, um, I couldn't I couldn't speak. I, I didn't know what words were. I couldn't write. And the doctor asked me um, what that. He showed me his watch. I didn't know what a watch was. He showed me his pen. He said, do you know what this is, Kevin? I says, no. He showed me pictures of Margaret Thatcher and things, you know. And I think I said cow. And the doctor said, I think you're right, you're right. I think you know you know her. So like so there was kinda they were showing me photographs of Santa and I didn't know who that was either. And um so Brian, my family, my family came to visit me, I didn't know who they were, I didn't know who my sisters were and things, didn't know their names. Um I was trapped inside my head and um so I had to recover from that and um, Brian had to sign a forum to for them to use a new drug which had been tried in France. And they said it would really localise or not. I couldn't make it worse. But they said it would localise the bruising. You get massive bruising um, on a part of the brain with a memory and all that is. So they gave me that and um, and I started getting a bit better and I could go home and stuff. But they told me that I would never be 100%. They told me that I would never speak properly. And I do speaking engagements today. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, this is what I mean by my recovery, you know. And then it says that I would never be able to write or read because I can't. I would never be able to see the words from it there. I was calling, I was calling, I was watching the TV in Brian's house and I was calling, um, I think Patrick Swayze was on TV playing with a tiger um, and I was saying, look at the guitar. He's got the guitar, you know. So there was, there was lots of, I had to learn words and stuff again. But it says um, I'd never be able to write and yes, I write, I'm writing a book and um, I've got a blog and I write articles and newspaper articles um, and media articles all around the world, you know. Um, it says I've never been, I'm the first I've ever been, I'm the first I've ever been, you know. So, yeah, I got back from it. But like I so said, people don't realise that the glamour, they try and glamorise things. They don't understand that what you're going through to, to back out of things, you know. So these are the risks we take. And if you're involved in, um, I think it was Jimmy Boyle, he said, um, if the poor people in Glasgow live on the edge of, yeah, the criminal classes live on the razor's edge, you know, mm. and um, he's it's very real, you know. So... I can kind of impact, I kind of let that, try and get that impact on people that you don't just get injured and walk away. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of distress from other people and stuff, you know. So so I'm not here glamorising what, what my life, I'm just I'm trying to, um, at this stage of the game where I am now, um, some things I can laugh at and um, some things I don't think about, you know. So like, so that's where I am at the moment, but it took a lot, a lot, to get there because there's trauma from injury in there so you can't kind of it takes years to kind of get to a place where you can kind of it doesn't it doesn't disable you so you're going through that recovery mm -hmm. what was your next major rest after that um after that um i was still involved in crime even though when i was recovering you know and uh the next one was that i was i was charged with um they tried, the police now know who we are and they're trying to nick us for anything. We ended up going down for an attempted murder, a stabbing, yeah. And um, and I've been involved in stabbing incidents where I've been fighting with two or three people and trying to defend myself and uh, other drug dealers. And um, But they're trying to, this they set us up for an attempted murder based on a, a microscopic piece of blood, you know. That, oh, the old... That, fake blood droplet I don't even know if they're allowed to do that now you know <laughs> by the way apparently um, there was a, a ferocious stabbing yeah in a small area a small closed room yeah and a, a bathroom and a toilet right and apparently they found uh, one speck of blood one really small on a sink and they said that um, out of 17 million billion people yeah that, that could have been me and Ryan's, and I think that was the third piece of evidence that had that, that, that put us down there, you know. So, like, so I was, we knew we were getting set up, we knew we were going to get set up, you know. But we were in it, we were in London, and um, uh, they raided our flat in London, and um, we were in uh, how uh, old are you now? What year is this? It's 26, you know, something like that. 20, 26, yeah, 26. You're 26, yeah. so what year about? Year nineteen eighty six. Eighty six. The Radio London flat. Yeah. So we're in Kensington. And Brian's in the, the top and I'm in the basement flat. And uh and I think what happened was somebody that, that knew us had been involved with the police and they'd been attached to that um 
that address and they came there then they found out that me and Brian's there and we were wanted for them. There was there was there was, there was they were investigating three attempt murders and they, they, I think they realised that there was weapons involved, guns and things. Um so they raided that, but the way they came in was um, my doors came in and uh, they had a photograph, a tall A4 photograph of me and they were looking at it. And um, But they had guns and um, they were telling me to get out of bed and stuff. But before the door came in, I'd heard the bin moving. And as John McVicker said, that he heard the bin as well when they raided his house, but, but, it, but it stopped moving. And he said to his missus, cats don't... <laughs> <laughs> when a cat hits a bin, it doesn't stop it, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's how he knew it was old Bill. But like so, so that went through my head when I heard the bin and I heard somebody kind of trying to stop it. And I looked out the window and they were all dropping down into the garden with their black clothing on, you know. So like so, next to my bed was a was a small knife with a, for cutting apples, you know, things like that, a small serrated edge on it. And that was the only weapon near me and um, they presented that in court and charged me with an offensive weapon when they nicked me then and uh, they nicked me with attempted murder or they, they says they're investigating free I end up one of them stuck and um, they got what they wanted they got me and Brian in prison and off the street but like so they busted the them in and um, the, he was shouting um, we know who you are we know who you are is that him is that him is that him and um, they got me and Brian up and down the street Brian was there as well handcuffed and they got us in, in there. Then we got to Glasgow, and um, that's when the trial was there. Then we got six years, and uh, then I got taken away because I'd been on the run. Um, before that, I got nicked for a, a small gun, you know, and um, illegal arms. So, like, so I got two years on top for that. So I got just over eight years. Um, I was 26 standing in court. You get sentenced. Uh, Lord McLean at the Aberdeen High Court. <clears throat> um, seen it in his infinite wisdom, right? To give me another two on top of six. <laughs> to kind of frighten me into mend my ways, you know? Um, eight and a half years. So like, so I didn't say... Um, oh my God, um, people will be worried about me, my family will miss me, I've got commitments, my children, and stuff like that. I just thought, how can I get out of my head, you know? The party's not over, Kevin, you know? I'm not letting these people be that. So that was that was the 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 um, the, the preoccupation with drugs, you know? At that, even at that stage, when I'm going down for eight years, I had no regrets. I was just thinking, who can I score from or who can I, what can I get? prison mm. not all the hearts that broke you know and the people that's going to miss you it's a selfish self-centered disease you know um nothing's precious before we get to your prison stories then what was it like being on the run murder it's um uh, it's uh you can't be you can't be a you can't establish yourself in uh, anywhere successfully you've got to use different ids um you're always someone else um, you can't talk about anything about your own life with anyone and you, and it gets lonely and you end up someone else I mean I was in London then as well and you're under different names and, you, and you're and you living a life you don't want to live and uh, and you can't be in the life you want unless you're on the run you're totally involved in crime or you're trying to kind of mend your ways and keep a low profile you know 
So it's mad that I mean, I went from, I was in Tower Hamlets and um, trying to keep a low profile and um, we were in the pub and uh, a guy burst in and fired a shotgun and uh, the telephone box, <laughs> I think he hit the telephone box, you know, and then it came off the wall and bang and uh, <laughs> And we all jumped down and then I'm going, is this for me? Is this, what is this, you know? Um, and it was just a kind of local feud. Um, so I'm trying to keep a low profile in the wrong place, you know? And uh, <laughs> next minute it's knee, no, knee, no. And I see the guys that took me there, I'm going, did you not realise this is, you know what I mean? Told me it was cool in here. That's the famous words, isn't it? Oh, you'll be okay here, you know? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no problem. <laughs> next minute there was guns going off and guys fighting. And uh, I says, oh, we've got to get out of here. And, uh, so there are sort of things you're coming across. And, um, How did you support yourself? Drug dealing and, um, and all that stuff. Always involved in crime. Plus there was um, some some main players and, and um, gave me money, you know. And in and, and London and Glasgow, um, there was a lot of villains who, who, who put a lot of money my way, you know. And um, and they give you a little mini envelope full of powder, you know, um, to look after you. Because... They'd been okay with you, you know. I found that weird. I'll tell you who gave me a couple of hundred quid one time and I just got, I get set up with the coppers again for something. I get thrown into Brixton prison and um and I came out and uh, Dave Courtney. Yeah. Dave Courtney. Oh, we've had him on the podcast. Yeah, wonderful Very early on, he's oh, a friend of James. Yeah, wonderful guy, isn't he? Um really funny and um but he was um he, in Carnaby Street at the time, there was a production company and um, there was this big poster of one of his movies. Um, so he'd been um, a bouncer, head of his own door team, security team, come gangster, come drug dealer, um, and now movie producer. <laughs> and I thought that was so cool. And um, so when I met him, um, I told him I was just at the slammer, you know, I was rough, you know what I mean? And he immediately in his pocket, he went like a couple hundred quid, you know. So, that's what villains and they kind of look after each other that way. You know? So you had history with him before that? No, no, I just he, he just I, I knew sorted him. you out. Yeah, he just sorted me because he first met me. Um, it tells you that he knows he's one of the troops, you know. And, and I was in Durham Prison with some of the people who'd financed his craze funeral as well, you know, businessmen who'd bankrolled that. And Dave was involved with that very much, I think. Because on the Dave Courtney videos that we post. Mm. He's controversial. He gets a lot of views. Controversy's yeah. good. It pulls in the views. Half of the people love him and half are saying, ah, oh, plastic gangster, this guy's fake, blah, 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 yeah. blah. But you're saying that legit. Well, I knew people in Durham who knew him. And um, Dave Courtney can be a businessman, a normal, legit businessman, if he wanted to. But he got on the other side of the tracks and he's a criminal. So he's a bona fide villain. And... Um, so I don't know why people say he's nothing plastic about him. Go and you fight him then, if you think he's plastic. <laughs> yeah. Go and you have a nice fight with him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Look, yeah. It's like me, it's got your plastic guy, show me your scars, you know, how many, what, the heartbreak and um, the sweat and the tears and the blood and the, the, the years in jail, you know. Plastic, Christ, you know what I mean? Oh, they call him a snitch. But if anyone has snitched, you know I mean? there's court paperwork showing their testimony. That's just, so these, uh, these people can never produce... Know, the testimony. But like a bit like a it's like nowadays everybody's called anti semi or um, homophobic or misogynistic and in the world we lived in you're called the grass, you know, it's just it's just a put down, isn't it? People we get this all the time, don't we? Yeah. People call you a narc and all that, you know. So you're doing an eight year <laughs> stretch, right? And yeah. you told me early before the podcast that there were multiple 
incidences where you almost got fights, uh, knife fights, people trying to kill you in prison? I mean, yeah, there's this, um, there's this thing of... Um, me and Brian um, were well got in prison, we were well looked after, and that was good because um, there was a lot of different people in there from Glasgow and people from Govan and the bank robbers and stuff like that. And uh, mostly bank robbers, yeah, they were very nice guys and they were different parts of Glasgow. And they've got their own code of conduct, you know, they're not out biting and using violence and, and drug dealing. They're using drugs and they're partying, right? A lot of them. So, um, when we went to prison, there was a, there was big boxes of tobacco and sweet and tins of marvel and God knows what waiting for us, you know, because these people sent it to us. And um, that was real cool. Well, like, sir, there's um, the loose cannons and, and, and heed the balls in the prison, you know, cycles and guys doing life and um, they don't care who you are. <laughs> don't, you don't mean <laughs> nothing to them. Yeah, they don't know nothing about um, what's happening in the, the world of villainy, right? Or the prison subculture. They're out there on their own and they don't care. Well, one of these came up against me and I was having a shower one time and he's leaped into the shower, a lifer, with this big long piece of metal. Determined, I can see it in his face, to kill me, yeah. Um, Why did he take exception to you? I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe because he felt left out or rejected or something in some sort of dealings, you know, or... I never doffed my cap enough to him, you know, something like that. Um, or he'd heard about me or whatever. But like, sir, um, or somebody's paid him, I don't know. But like, sir, he jumped in and I was fighting for my life in a, in a shower, you know, or scrapes. And so you had no weapon in there, you're naked. No, oh, naked, yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. People call you a plastic gangster or whatever they want to call Dave Courtney. Go and do that, you know, yeah. <laughs> and like, sir, so like I so said, yeah, I had to fight. I ended up falling outside you know, the, the shower. And I mean, little small space. End up falling out there with him and then getting the thing out. Once I get the blade out of his hand, you know, I just punch lumps at him, you know. And I just punched him as far away from that weapon as possible because that time I'm absolutely raging, you know. Um, and I know exactly where to land, you know, to, to, to silence him, <laughs> to put him down, you know. And um, so that was it. Have you got a technique for getting a blade off someone? A blade? Yeah. Have you got a technique to take the blade off them? Yeah, it's, um, it's a hand movement, isn't it? You can twist their hand, yeah? I want to demonstrate. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, what, what they've got, you've got to get to the back of them if you want to get the, you've got to get the back of the hand, you know? Get the back of the hand. Yeah. And another thing is, if someone's got a big blade, yeah, or a sword, a sword. you get in close, you get in close, yeah, because they can't, hit you with a sword you know so that's another thing and you can deal with them at that length but like sir I've kicked a blade off somebody really really quickly as soon as they pulled it out I booted it right out of their hand you know I knew a guy who did that in the jail I was at and he, I was surprised he, he ended up with it in his foot I went alright <laughs> yeah I was surprised I got it out of his hand you know but then again um, the old one in Glasgow is to take your jacket off wrap it round your arm yeah, one of your arms, yeah, and go in and try and take the blow that way while you try and get the knife off them. Mm. That happens a lot in Glasgow. As soon as a knife fight comes out, somebody get the jackets off and wraps it around their hand, you know. But yeah, but there's a move you can do. You can grab somebody with the back of the wrist. See, we them. bring you knife fight tips as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to protect yourself. But like, sir. Yeah, so I was in there, there was um, guys trying to attack me with scissors and that, and this 
And oh, the, this is all like nothing for no real reason, just petty shit that happens in prison. Petty shit, yeah. Petty shit, man. I was in two riots as well. It caught them two riots, which I didn't want nothing to do with. Um, let me out the wing, please. Right? This is not my, my fight, you know what I mean? So um ended up with that and um, and just gladly moved, you know, because I wasn't going to take nothing. What were they writing of? Was it conditions? Conditions, uh, food and um, visits, um, babies being searched by, and their nappies being opened and fingers going under um, babies' nappies and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so people were outraged by that. And um, then another time, uh, uh, Tommy Gordon took, took um, an officer hostage. Tommy was a young guy. He was one of these guys that ended up doing two years, ended up doing life. And um, Kenny Kelly was from Glasgow and he was running about with him. And they stopped the two, they two see, they two seen each other. So that, they, that kicked off. But like I said, yeah, and he took a, a screw hostage. But I wanted nothing to do with all that. I wanted to kind of do my own thing and get out, you know. But like I said, um, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't most of it. But my, a lot of mine was in solitary confinement because it was screws, assaults, was prison officers, not fighting with prison officers. And I wasn't, I wasn't cooperating. It wasn't until I went to Durham I settled down. I realised that I'm not going anywhere. I'm now an escapee. I'm escapee. I've got high security. Um, there's no chance of me getting a, a, a trustee status. Um, I'm not going. I'm doing every day. And then I realised that I might as well knuckle down. And then when the, the when I was allowed to attend education. I get involved in writing stories and I got a Kessler Prize and Brian, oh, got, yeah. Brian got one for that. I'll put the link in the description box below this video to the Kessler Trust. Kessler Trust, I want a short story conversation with them. They put me on their mentor scheme and that was one of the major things in my life that helped me to rehabilitate brilliant people, Kessler Trust. And I, I do donate. Um, there's some money done, it gets donated to them at the end of every month. Yeah. What happened to me with the Kessler was um, I, won, I won the Kessler Prize for poetry. Um, Brilliant. The third, and I won the short story. Um, then I got that. I got a short story published, and I won two poems to, for, for Kessler. I got one, and uh, one third. I got a third prize, a Financial Times Award wow. prize, and uh, and what that may change me as well. A social worker gave me a book and a pen, and um, I started writing about the last few years in prison, and I've still got that. And uh, so, what happened? Um, I got involved with an artist as well, and. Um, that and that's and I get moved to F Wing, which is just for a note was was John McVickers broke broke out from in Durham, yeah. So I went to F Wing. Sarah Bronson's there. Michael, Bronson was there. Bronson was there. Yeah. So did you have any interaction with him? Just seen him in the window when he showed me his runs. <laughs> I used to walk. Solitary was along here, and um, I used to walk in the F Wing, and the F Wing had just been decorated, so. The screws had come out right. They knew that I wasn't going anywhere, but I was in a mad wing where there's a lot of battling going on and all that and but I'm in my last 18 months I'm no there's nothing I'm going to do in prison or see in prison that I haven't done and seen already I'm fed up with it I'm now writing I'm getting access to a pen and paper and education and I'm writing poetry and I'm getting kissed or stuff but I'm still in the the madness the wild west you know and um, and there's no respite and uh, so the, the they says you're not going anywhere. You're not going to an open prison. So they put me in the F wing. They've just been done up, and they says you can get your own cell over there. And I remember they took me over, and then it was really touched me because when they opened the door and showed me my cell, and it was on ice and after the toilet with a door, and um, and he said, "This is your cell, Kevin." And that was the first time 
in nearly eight years that, that I screwed and they never called me by my Christian name. And it really, really, I mean, like, you know, so they must, they must know that they must be going to right with me, you know, and give a break. And they just called me Kevin. And, uh, but when I used to walk into the wing, I used to see uh, Charles Bronson used to show me his drawings. What do you think it is, one then? What are you? <laughs> and uh, all that. Which, um, and I I wish I did have a conversation with him, but um, yeah, Jim marching about in his cell, because I'd walk right by the cells, you know. So then I'd walk by Michael Sams, and Michael Sams was um, the guy who kidnapped Elaine Slater. Was it Slater? Um, I don't the, know. The Sams. Birmingham estate agent got kidnapped. And she get put in one of them trolley bins. Mm -hmm. And um, what he did was um, he, he spoke, a guy called Kevin who worked for her, and he spoke to the different phone boxes and there was free, court, free, free police forces involved. And he, he got them, he led this guy by phone to a bridge over a railway station and there was a silver tray on the, on the bridge. And he told the guy put the bag of money on the tray. And he was at the bottom in the valley and there was all smog and smoke, foggy. And the train was going by there. He pulled a rope on the train and pulled it down, pulled the money, jumped on a bicycle and ran, ran along the railway line with fog above him. And there was three police forces looking for him. And he got away with it. Grave. He got nicked when his wife was talking, uh, heard them speak on Crime Watch. She grasped him up. <laughs> yeah, and um, so I've seen him. I've seen him. He, he's one leg. He limps. Apparently, he... Um, the, the first girl he kidnapped, Julie Dart, was a prostitute and supposed to have died, you know, because of him. But I don't know, I've always thought that wasn't him, that one, you know, because why would you kidnap a prostitute and try and get money for her? You know, so it was a bit weird. But anyway, I seen him. Then while I was there, there was a woman's wing next door and um, I was coming over to go to my wing and um, I banged into Rose West and she was... Rose uh, West? Rose West, yeah. So I had to stop. I'm with security because I need... I need two or three screws every time I move about the prison, yeah? And they've got this little book that gets signed in each wing. She had her guards and um, the two were to stop as the gate got open to get in the F wing. She's going into the H wing, which is bang on um, F wing. So I've seen her. But it's quite funny at, at night because when I'm look, putting my mirror out and I can see the side of the building going out, I can see into her, her cell. But I used to talk to the girls next door using the mirror. And um, a Scottish girl was in for 12 years for cocaine. So we used to chat to each other. And um, and Rose West, I used to see her skirting, sewing her dress and undressing. And so I've seen Rose West's breasts you know, oh. <laughs> in the moonlight over Durham. Yeah. Oh. And uh, so that was, um, and then you turn around and you see her in one of these murder magazines, you know, front page. It's just weird. So downstairs, I went over the gym to get something done and I banged into Myra Henley. And uh, Myra I Henley. seen Myra Henley, yeah. So um, I came face to face with her and she was up the gym for ankle bracelets. She's also operatus. She'd been thrown down the, the stairs. They'd thrown her down the stairs? Yeah. Somebody Prisoners or the guards? Prisoner. Prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, she'd done her legs in. Did you speak to her? No. Um, they get on you right away as soon as you accidentally banging it, you know, when I was going to the doctors and the, the gym, you know. Um, but outside the bottom cells, you can see right onto the two feet, there's a fence right into the woman's yard. So I used to see her coming out in the wheelchair. But this, this, this her, 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 her girlfriend used to bring her out. Uh, yeah. Um, 
she had her hair, brown hair, short hair, and very um, hatchet nose, small face, you know. But you can see it in her. Um, yeah. Just incredible that um, I grew up seeing these, they become iconic things, don't they? Yeah, like uh, the Yorkshire Ripper stuff Yorkshire like Ripper that. Yorkshire Ripper and stuff, yeah. yeah. Then seeing that. So that was weird. That was uh, kind of some of the most famous people I met in there. Is this your last prison stint, or do you yeah, have another no, one? Yeah, no, 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 that's my last one. So when I came out um, near the end of my sentence, what happened was, um, you think, it was they were good to me. Um, I got an art exhibition in Durham Cathedral. So I'm doing my art, and it's on show in Durham Cathedral, Sean. So this is all good, and um, I'm writing a diary. I've got access to pen and paper. I'm less a security risk, yeah. So um, I've got education around me. I'm, 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 I've, I've done this big portrait of me, and I've, I've nailed a piece of wood across the, the mouth, yeah. Meaning that, I, you know what I mean? Like that. No, I never. I done that because the news I had, you know, I'd got. And what happened when I done this portrait? I went back and, and nailed a big piece of wood across it, um, meaning that I was stunned and I couldn't speak because I was feeling a bit elated that. I could express myself through poetry and art and stuff, and I was getting support around that. Then my two brothers came to visit me because I was—I just got to visit my mum and stuff. Um, uh, brother William and Michael came up, and um, they told me that my son Kevin, is, um, who was sixteen at the time, had died. What? Mm. And um, I had three months to go, um, oh. and he—he he, he danced. He'd, um, he had accidentally overdosed on, oh. on, on, on drugs, yeah. Yeah. I just, um, it was, lots of kids were out that weekend and, and um, that all over Britain and, and they were experimenting with drugs and alcohol and that that's what they were doing. But he passed away at three o'clock in, uh, in his bed, you know, and his girlfriend. Um, so hearing that and... Um, and going back into prison, you know, it's, um, are you, how are you feeling? You say, I'm all right. And you just, I'm all right. And you just, you don't discuss nothing with nobody. And that's when I put the, the piece of board across my portrait. Then art and poetry and culture and music meant nothing to me then. Mm. I raised even more, more anger, you know, against society. And I was getting released and they didn't give me, um, the system, yeah, I never got any parole, compassionate parole at all. Um, I was taken to my son's funeral, handcuffed, double handcuffed, um, with about four prison officers, you know. Um, then the incredible thing was, um, yeah, I got to, um, I was in the prison in the city where he was, and uh, they knew me, and my son had, 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 he was going about wayward, yeah, that teenagers do. Um, but I understand addiction, and my son may have had problems like that. I don't know. But he'd been in trouble with the police, and he'd, 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 he'd went down and got into trouble for what someone else done. And um, they put him in prison and um, for a couple of weeks, I think, or a few days. I can't remember. But the prison officers, when I arrived at that prison, they knew my son. They'd seen him a few weeks earlier. They knew whose funeral I was going to. Um, so I'd heard he was in there and I says to the screws, did you see my son in here? Is my son in here? And they went, yeah. Um, and I says, what cell was he in? 
And there's a cell right at the end at the bottom wing where they put young people. And there's about four beds in it, five beds, you know. It's a big cell. But um, there was no dinner and um, the, the bunk beds had been moved about and dishevelled the beds and that. It hadn't been done up. So I asked the screw to open the door and let me in, could I get in? You know, so I wanted to be where my son was and um, I'm in there and um, I seen his name on the wall. Which was weird, you know, being in prison and seeing your sons there. So I seen a couple of kids' uh, names on the wall, but yeah. So I done that, and um, when I, when he was laid to rest, I came back to prison, and I had no no intention. Um, I was stunned, um, seriously, uh, emotionally, mentally, car crashed, you know, and I never smoked a lot after that, you know, and what. So then I get released on, uh, and the big doors opened. What year is that now? 1997. 97. And I've stepped over uh, with no probation support, no criminal justice interventions, no health interventions, no psychological interventions, no psychiatric evaluation, no counselling, no therapy. I had the, the double minefield of the prison release and grief mm. and they expect you to be okay. And I wasn't, you know, so quite quickly, my my my, my life um, ended up with including more drugs, and, and that's when I ended up homeless. And um, all I was interested in was the next hit, and uh, nothing else mattered. Um, and uh, what would you do for your next hit, whatever it took? And um, as as uh, Lord Byron, the poet, says, you know, my my pleasure became my pain. Mm. I knew neither virtue nor shame, and that's where my uh, descent into Class A drugs took me, and I didn't want to come out of it. I didn't want to feel pain, you know. Um, my daughter was in my life. Shelley, she was fifteen year old, sixteen year old, um, and I'd be homeless because I did not care for anything else. Um, and notorious shoplifter in the West End, ripping tourists off to get by. But my daughter um, would come down the West End and look for me and um, and she would have socks and maybe a pair of trainers for me and stuff, you know, she wanted to see her dad and I would sell them because nothing became, nothing was precious and this is the power of addiction and um, people talk about um, these, I was using drugs when I don't want to use drugs. I was drinking when I don't want to drink, you know, so um, I was um, trying to look for um, some sort of emotional safety need, you know, which wasn't available when I'm sober. Uh, I'm 16 years sober now, so I'm clean. So How did you pull yourself out of that, out of that? phase? Well, um, what happened was um, I was in the West End. Me and Brian get pulled up for a robbery we didn't do, yeah? I was fine with another junkie in the toilet in Covent Garden, and uh, he said that I robbed £10 from him. So again, me and Brian got nicked. Um because Brian would come down from Glasgow and I and end up using together and stuff like that. But like so, um we were running about Soho a lot. We're very well known in Soho and uh, earned a lot of money down there as well and um, involved in the clubs, taking customers to clubs and stuff. And you know what goes you know what goes on in Soho. <laughs> so so what happened was um we went to prison, Brixton Prison. We got charged with robbery. It wasn't us. Didn't want nothing to do with it. Um, told uh, anybody to listen. This is a setup. This is just me fighting with a junkie. Nothing happened. Yeah, he ripped me off, and I wanted my money back. 
and we ended up in a fight. Then he says, "Robbery." Anyway, we went to Brixton Prison. My mum, who had, um, who had cancer, um, was very, very poorly. Uh, me and Brian um, were allowed to speak to my mum three days before she passed away on a prison phone in a wing when people are playing darts, arguing over the pool cue and the telly's blam. And that was the last time we spoke to my mother. Mm. Um, and she passed away with cancer. Um, and then when we went to see the governor, when he came to tell us, they brought a few screws around in case we kick off, you know. They came into my cell. Um, the governor says that my mum's died and uh, but we're not but we're not allowed to go and see a, a tender funeral. So they denied us to, to attend my man's funeral, citing security reasons, you know. Um, so, so me and Brian, went, um, we never got to see my man's funeral. And um, we went to court on the 7th of February, a couple of weeks later. Mum died on the 30th, I think, December. And the High Court judge says, I don't know why you're here because these charges against you were dropped 11 days ago. So me and Brian were held in a British prison, unlawfully, illegally, for 11 days without charge, while my mother died and was buried, and we weren't allowed to attend the funeral. Mm. Um, um, how you resolve such a thing, how the system apologises, I don't know. Um, but they didn't, because three years into my recovery, I pursued that. And the, the prosecutor that made that decision wouldn't wouldn't appear at court to answer questions. So nothing became of it. There was no apology. There's no compensation. So the system can do what it wants. And that's why we must be outraged by such things and we must make them public and we must campaign to make people accountable. Um because there's lots of people out there and, and just because they're criminals or termed criminals or are repeat offenders and they may be non-violent, there may be problems with mental health issues, alcoholism, these things are happening to them. Um, we must um, be willing to stand up and say this stuff's happening. And it happened to me and Brian, you know. But like I so, quite quickly after that, my daughter came back into my life, my family came back into my life. And um, we went to rehab. Brian went to rehab and um, before me, and it inspires me to get into rehab. So I got clean and sober because I seen Brian do it. And, uh, yeah. and um, I spent six months rebuilding my life and rebuilding me, the broken parts of me. Um, we're not perfect, but some parts here are excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, so I had to learn how to live again, how to, how to enjoy life and stuff like that. And then in rehab, I dedic I've did I've made up my mind, I dedicate my life to kind of advocating for people who who, um, who are still suffering and, and in the madness and um, I'll do what I can. And John Bird, um, the, 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 the big issue founder, Lord Bird, he was doing a speech once and in the questions and answers, he was he, he cited me, me, you know, and he said that um, Kevin Dooley had done many, many years in prison for this and that, you know, and, and it's changed his life. He was now part of the problem, now he's part of the solution. And um, and that's where we should shine the light on people like him who are keeping it real, 
basically, yeah. And um, saying, look, this is this is how it was. This is who I am. But um, as I say, your past is not a life sentence. Not at all. Your past is not a life sentence. You've got you're, you're capable of change, you know. And um, everywhere I go today, I feel grateful. I've had the life I led because in the last sixteen years, that pain has been fuel for my journey, Sean, and I've been able. Um, just being vulnerable and um, being open, you know. Um, no being the best person, no being the best father, no being the best brother, um, and stuff like that. It's not. A, it's not a life sentence. You can change and you can do what you want because I haven't been there for like uh, my grand, my grandchildren, and um, like my son's grandkids as well because his his girlfriend was pregnant when he passed away, and they're now really, really successful twenty one year olds. So. Abandoned family and, and not being there for them and being in prison and being involved in crime and drugs and stuff and not being there for your children and that. Um, these things, life can turn around and we, we can make amends. Um, today, um, I have, I'm have i in a loving relationship for five years and um, I've been gifted um, the wonder and the beauty and the joy of a 15-month-old baby. It's a little girl I've got, you know. So I've got a daughter. Man, yeah. yeah, so I can life, um, I can start life again, you know. Um and um, her name's Aubrey, Aubrey Rose, and um, me and Sarah. She's her whole world, and um, I've never seen, I've seen things through different eyes, you know. She's she's a wee diamond. Um, so what I'm saying is um, you can ha you can dream another dream, and you can build again, and uh, and this time it can be better. And it has been in my, my, my case, you know. Yeah, what an inspirational story. And I've seen you speaking on, like, TV, RT, um, various clips and and you're out there doing your other stuff with people with addiction issues and the homeless mm. are there any ways that the people watching this video um, can help your mission I think we mentioned earlier we're going to put your links up there yeah um, people can contact you for speaking <clears throat> and, uh, things like yeah. that yeah mostly my, my contacts come through Twitter yeah Twitter's the but best way to get a hold of you it's the best way to go I'm on Twitter but I'm also on Facebook and um, my my organisation I do that says um, Real World Recovery. Real World Recovery. Real World Recovery. So we've got a link for that that we can put in. Yeah, I'll give you the link for that. And um, I'm interested in um, doing creative ways of um, informing policy, drug policy, informing drug treatment and change the public perception of addiction. This is my main force. Um, Everything I do is geared towards that. But but I do um, do, um, my speaking engagements also, my blog. I've got a blog. Yeah, What's the name of the blog? A cruel healing. A cruel yeah, healing. Yeah, and um, and that's that's one of the books I'm writing, and I'm also working on a book called um, Antidote, which is talking about trauma linked in with addiction, uh, childhood trauma. I read the article online about you. Was it in the Independent? Yeah, big Independent. That was a really good article. I'll put the link of, in that in the description. It's a big center page one, isn't it? It's a good one. Did you say that you were work? You had done something with Professor David Nutt? Yeah, I was just. Um, I haven't done anything impressive. I've been in contact with him regarding things I've done. Yeah, but like so, where I am right now, I've um, I've been invited to Cambridge Union to address the Cambridge Union. Brilliant. I'd speak to a lot of universities. I've spoke and had good feedback from the British Society of Criminology, international conferences, and pharmaceuticals. And um, and I'm online doing a doing a talk at Durham University. Um, I was in the invited scholar. Uh, suppers it's called the scholar supper talk 
me of all people. And I just like to tell you, <laughs> tell you that when I got to, I've been to Durham three times now, and it was the first time I went to Durham University to do a talk. It was daunting and I was frightened and I felt like that junkie and that prisoner again because I was going back to that city that I walked out of the prison in. This was my first visit. And um, and the fear came up in me. It was kind of, I don't, I'm that junkie. I don't mean anything anymore. I'm worthless, you know. But I got to the, before I'd done the, the talk, I left the hotel I was in and I, I walked up to the prison. I found out, you know, that and I walked to his row of houses and I could see the, the, the high battlements of the, the prison. And and I walked out to the front and I was petrified inside. There was something going, this is a big giant thing from the past that I'm just about to face. Um, this is where I was told, that, you know, the worst news of my life. And this is where I would walked out with nothing. Um, and I took a deep breath and I, I stood in front of that big massive door. And it looked smaller because I was away from it. But I walked towards it. And attentively, I reached out and touched it. Then I put my other hand on it. And I, it was like getting into a fight. I was going to fight with this big giant, past this big giant prison. So I turned around and I stepped towards it and I pressed my body against it. And I could feel it all. Then I walked away and I turned around and I looked at Durham Prison and I looked at that big door and I said... Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. That's what I said, man. And it just left me. And I says, I'm not that guy that you knew. I'm bigger than that. And I went and done a brilliant talk that was filmed. It was on YouTube. Um, it's called Talk. And it was standing room only. So so um, apparently um, I get a lot of good feedback regarding the speaking engagements. What a, what a classic anecdote to finish it on. <laughs> if you've got any questions for him, please put them in the comments below. If you want to see him on with his brother, Brian, Kevin and Brian, the identical twins. You see those, see Brian in there. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if, if, um, if you'd like to see them both on together, um, then you can request that in the comments below. Please let us know how you felt about this podcast and like and subscribe. And uh, man, what what a journey. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Cheers, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Brilliant. Brilliant.